podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. During this Advent season, we have had uh, just an amazing privilege here of having our preaching team preach the first three weeks of Advent. So if you're new with us today, I'm going to catch you up very quickly. Our first week of Advent, which is a week of hope, Pastor Jonathan preached on the fact that the Lord is near in chaos. He actually pulled from what is called a, an apocalyptic passage and where everything seems to be so chaotic in the scriptures. And Jonathan came to announce the gospel that in Christ's coming, the Lord is near, even when the world is in chaos. And then Pastor Dan preached the following week, week two, which is the week of peace. And Pastor Dan preached on the fact that the Lord is near, even when we seem to be in a wilderness season. How many of you would say, yeah, 2018 is kind of a wilderness season, or maybe I'm in a wilderness right now. Anybody can identify with that? The good news of the gospel to you is that even when you're in a wilderness and you're experiencing loneliness and it seems like everything is barren and dry, the good news of the gospel and Christ's coming is that the Lord is near even in the wilderness. And sometimes he's near, especially in the wilderness. And then last week, my amazing wife, Pastor Christy, she preached that the Lord is near in hardship. And she pulled a passage from the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippian church when many scholars believe that he was actually writing from a Roman jail cell. And over and over and over again in the book of Philippians, Paul says, rejoice, rejoice. In fact, one time he says, rejoice in the Lord always, and just in case you didn't hear me, again, I say rejoice. And she gave us eight amazing principles and practices on how we can participate with the joy that is available, not in circumstance, but the joy that is present in the Lord. There is a joy in the Lord that is available for us. And today we're going to be talking about the fact that the Lord is near, not just in chaos, not just in the wilderness. The Lord is near, not just in hardship, but the Lord is near in our humility and in our lowliness. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to go with me to the book of Luke chapter one, Luke chapter one. And we're going to begin our text this morning at verse 39, and we're going to go from 39 all the way through 56. Luke chapter 1, 39 through 56. Father, today we thank you so much. We thank you, God. Our hearts are full with gratitude this morning, and our hearts are full with praise that you are near, that you are present in chaos, that you are present in our wilderness that you are close to us in the midst of our hardship and our difficulty and our struggling and our suffering. And Lord, you are near in our lowly and humble state. Father, we thank you that no matter what any of us are going through today, the gospel proclamation that brings us hope, that gives us the promise of new life is that you are Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And on that, we hang our hope. 
And on that, we set, Father God, our faith and our affection and our obedience. We pray today, Holy Spirit, that you would rest upon every single one of us, minister to us, speak to us, bring revelation that awakens our hearts afresh and anew. We pray these things today in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter one, verse 39. At that time, Mary got ready and she hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and she greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months, and then she returned home. Amen, this is the word of the Lord. Today, I wanna talk with you about this young gal by the name of Mary. And I don't wanna just talk with you about Mary. I wanna talk with you more about who God is and what Mary serves as an example and a model for, not just in that time historically, but more importantly, perhaps, what Mary serves as a model for us today. And there's three things I wanna share about Mary. There's three things I wanna share about who God is that Mary reveals. And then I wanna talk about three things in her prayer that we begin to understand about the kingdom. So three things about Mary, three things about God, three things about the kingdom. It's a typical sermon. (laughs) Exponentially multiplied. What do we learn about Mary in this? Let's take a look right here, going back to Luke chapter one, and we'll begin just for the time of our exposition. We'll begin right here in verse 42. In a loud voice, Elizabeth exclaimed, blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child that you will bear, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. Elizabeth, who as many of us know from the narrative here, Elizabeth is older in years. Mary is very young. She is a teenager and she is betrothed to Joseph. And according to the scriptures right here, she is uh, with child and the Holy Spirit has conceived Jesus within her. So Mary goes to Elizabeth And she stays with her for several months. She is encouraging Elizabeth in Elizabeth's journey 
but she's also receiving the life and the affirmation, the blessing and the prophetic ministry that Elizabeth brings to Mary. And here's one of the things that Elizabeth affirms over Mary's life. Blessed is she and blessed is the person who what they hear God say, they have the faith and the obedience to move on it. That's something that we can learn from Mary today. And listen, we could pull any person from the scriptures who exemplifies that life to say, let's put this up as a standard and a model to look at. One of the things that we'll discover about Mary is that there was, there was nothing so significant or so special about Mary that merited the encounter of God. When Mary begins to pray in response, what we find is, is that God moves upon Mary's life in nothing but absolute grace and nothing but absolute mercy. So we're not talking about some uh, unhealthy or unbalanced approach at looking at Mary's life. We're not talking about Mary worship. We're saying this was someone who had an encounter with God, who received a promise from God, and she said, God, this is gonna cost me something. This is gonna be difficult. There's gonna be challenge here. There's gonna be smear campaigns that are released on my name. I mean, I'm betrothed, and in that day and in that time, in that culture, to be betrothed or engaged or promised to someone was, was exactly the same as being married. And so everyone knows that when Mary walks around and starts putting on a little weight, hey, you're not married yet, are you? Mary, how is it? And then all of a sudden it's scandalous. And Mary understanding this full well when she has a conversation with the angel, when the angel brings this to her attention, she still responds. Despite the sacrifice, despite the inconvenience, despite the challenge, despite the fact that this has never been done in history before, unprecedented. In fact, in one of my readings, I thought this was interesting. Some people say, well, hey, listen, when, when Zechariah had a conversation with the angel and Zechariah was, was like, hey, how is this gonna happen? He got you got a consequence. <laughs> so Zechariah has a conversation with the angel when he finds out in his old age they're going to have a child. And the angel says, okay, that's fine. I'm just going to make sure that you can't speak for the entire duration of the child's pregnancy, right? But Mary responds exactly the same way. And how come Mary's not punished that way? Because this was never done in history. See, at least Zechariah had something that he could refer back to in Sarah and Hannah he had, he had models that were, that were embedded in the Jewish culture that he could look to to awaken faith. Mary had no model to look at. You're like, you, 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 mean, you mean to tell me I'm, 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 I'm gonna be pure and chaste and I'm not gonna have relations and, and at the same time, God himself, and how, yeah, I don't understand how this is gonna be. And the angel says, don't worry. Nothing shall be impossible with God. And her response is, let it be unto me as you have said. And Elizabeth recognizes this faith and she affirms it and she speaks into it. And that's something that we can lay a hold of. The Lord may ask you to do some difficult things. The Lord may ask you to do some seemingly impossible things. You mean you want me to go and wait, wait, you want me to go to their house and do what? You want me to call them up? No, I'm not gonna do it. You want me to forgive them? Lord, did you know what they did? You want me to give? You see what I'm saying? The Lord may ask you to do some things that are seemingly impossible. The thing that we can draw from this narrative and from the character of Mary's life is, Lord, may it be unto me as you have said to your servant. The second thing that we see in Mary's life is she was a person of praise. And I love this about Mary, that she wasn't entitled. 
If you look back right here on the opening lines of her song, it says right here in verse 46, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. The first thing that Mary does in response, she says, I'm going to praise him for what he has done. I recognize that there is nothing special in my life. I recognize that I didn't earn this amazing privilege and yet God by his grace, I recognize that anything good that the Lord has done in my life is a result of his grace and his faithfulness, not just to me, but to all of humanity and the promises that he has made through his covenant. So we see that Mary is a person of praise. She's a person of gratitude. She's a person of prayer. And this is something that we can draw from Mary's life. Mary wasn't entitled. Mary wasn't like, yeah, you're darn right. Watch out, mother of the Savior coming through. Now, that, wasn't, that wasn't Mary. In fact, Mary's like, why would you recognize me in my humble and lowly estate? And look right here at the next verse, and this is the third thing that we see about Mary. She says, my soul glorifies the Lord, verse 47, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary recognized, even though she was the one by the sovereign will of God to carry Jesus, she recognized that she needed a savior. She recognized that even in her lowly and humble state, that by the grace of God, that she was selected. Who knows why it was God's will, but she still needed a savior. And she responds, Lord, you are my savior. She recognized her need. She recognized the poverty of her soul, the poverty of her spirit, and she responded. Well, in her prayer, she reveals some things about God that I think are helpful for us today. Number one, she says in verse 48, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And today I wanna to announce to you that God is mindful of your state. The first thing that we learn about God from this passage is that he is mindful. He's mindful. And one of the translations that I read, it says that he notices. And that particularly spoke to me. He notices. He sees you. He sees you. And not, listen, not in this vindictive, judging, angry, suspicious way. I'm talking about he sees you when you feel like no one else sees you. He sees you. He sees who you are. He sees the unique struggle that you're walking through. He sees the efforts that you are making. He sees the loneliness. He sees the pain. He sees you. He notices. He's mindful. I was reminded when I read this passage, if those of you who recall in, in the redemptive story of the Exodus, in Exodus chapters one through three, we find that the children of Israel are multiplying in Egypt in such a manner that Pharaoh looks at, looks at them and he says, we've got to do something about this. And there's a particular verse there in Exodus chapter three when Moses is tending to his sheep and he walks by and he sees a bush, a bush that is burning and is not consumed. Moses comes close to check it out and here's what God says. God says, I have heard the cries. I have heard the cries. And friend, I want you to know that the scripture tells us that he is mindful of our humble state, that he hears your cry, that he is well acquainted with your struggle and with your fear. He's well acquainted with the things that tempt you. He's well acquainted with these things. He's not angry with you. He's not mad at you. 
He's not watching over just to judge and just to strike you. He is near and he is mindful and he is paying attention. And to that, you might say, well, why in God's name aren't you doing anything? And this leads us to the second thing that Mary says. Not only is he mindful. Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. He's mindful, but he's mighty. And he's mighty on your behalf. He is mighty. This is gospel proclamation to you today, Antioch, that not only does he notice, not only does he care, but he is mightily working on your behalf. The spirit of God is working in your life. You may not recognize it. You may not see it. It may not be in the way or the manner or the timing that you expect it to be, but I'm here to announce to you today the gospel witness that God is at work. And his work in your life is mighty. It is mighty. And the thing that we see from Mary is that there is no person, no matter how lowly their state is, that is exempt from the work of God. We'll see this when we begin to explore the nature and the DNA of this kingdom. See, God doesn't just work on behalf of the popular. He doesn't just work on behalf of the strong. He doesn't just work on behalf of the political. He works on behalf of every person. No matter how large, no matter how great, no matter how small, no matter how impoverished, no matter how within the cultural parameters of that day, how ostracized they may seem. Listen, I want you to know that God is mindful and he's at work. He's at work on your behalf, Antioch. Number three, not only is God mindful and not only is he mighty, but he is merciful. He is merciful. I love it that Mary gave us a three-point sermon and they all start with the same letter. His, interesting, fascinating. His mercy, look at verse 51, or verse 50. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. And isn't it interesting that Mary in this particular psalm, this particular hymn of praise, that she doesn't say that his mercy extends to just the Jews. She doesn't, she doesn't say that his mercy extends only to those within the covenant of Abraham. He, she doesn't say that his, his mercy extends only to the powerful or the rich. This is the good news that Luke is trying to announce to all of us because Luke is writing to the Gentiles. Matthew's writing to the Jews. Luke is writing to the Gentiles to say, listen, the good news that joy has come to the world is that there is a savior that has come for all of humanity. And that's why right here where he says, he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has, oh, I mean, verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him. His mercy is available. So not only is he mighty and powerful, but the thing that balances that might and that power is this amazing mercy. That God is so merciful. He's merciful, friends. His grace covers all of our weaknesses and mistakes and failures. His mercy is present. And his mercy is for you today. His mercy is for you today. Mary then transitions her prayer. You can see that actually within the structure of her prayer, it begins on thanking God for the activity of God in, his, in her life. And, and then there's a corner that she turns. And Mary begins to pray into and for the people of Israel. And when she does this, she actually prophetically announces a new type of kingdom that has come. And this is where we'll end 
our time talking about this kingdom. Look at verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. The first thing that we discover about this kingdom, this kingdom of God that is coming, is that it is a revolutionary kingdom. Now we tend to think here, oh, isn't this just a sweet song? Just a nice lullaby. And it couldn't be the furthest thing from the truth. In fact, there were actual missionary agencies that when they would send missionaries out to go proclaim the gospel to other lands, particularly politically hostile lands, they would actually instruct their missionaries, do not read from this passage. Because this passage is such a revolutionary passage. When you get into the meat of what Mary is saying, she's essentially saying that the way that the world is that we've lived in for all of this time, it is gonna be completely and absolutely and radically turned up on side its head because this king who is coming, he is bringing with him a new kind of kingdom. And, it is, and, and we see right here at this first verse, he has performed mighty deeds with his arms. He has scattered those who are proud. The first revolution that this king brings is a moral revolution. It is a moral revolution. He changes the value system of humanity. Remember, if you would, in Genesis chapter three. So Genesis chapter three, we go all the way back to the beginning. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates humanity at the apex of his creation. He gives humanity authority and responsibility in the earth. And then Genesis chapter three, our villain, our enemy enters onto the scene. And our villain introduces a new type of culture. It is a culture of suspicion. It's a culture of self-sufficiency. It's a culture of independence. It's a culture of pride. It's a culture that essentially says that you don't need God. You can do for yourself what God wants to do for you, right? So the enemy injects within his mindset and his belief system, he injects into the DNA of the cosmos a value system that elevates pride. And so Mary prophetically proclaims that when our king comes and when his kingdom expands, it is a kingdom that does not exalt the proud. It is a kingdom where the proud in their hearts, not just their actions and not just their behaviors, but the proud in their innermost thoughts are scattered. And who are the ones who are elevated? Who are the ones that are exalted? It's the humble. It's the lowly. That is completely counterintuitive to the way that we live life. It is completely counterintuitive. And we have to be careful. We have to be careful because the empire of America, let's, let's, just, be, let's just get real for a few minutes. Because the empire of America, you guys, validates and affirms and celebrates and champions the spirit and the culture of the kind of kingdom that Mary is addressing. She's addressing a spirit within an empire of that day. She's underneath the oppression of Rome. An empire that celebrates strength and glory and independence and individualism and pride. And she's saying, listen, but when our king comes, all of you who are strutting around, our king is coming as a servant. Our king is coming and he has said that the nature and the rule of this kingdom is to serve one another. That's, that's the spirit of this king and his kingdom. And we see that Mary becomes a prophetic prototype. 
She becomes a prophetic model of what that kingdom will produce. Why do I say that? Because God chooses to pick the most marginalized, disinherited, dispossessed, forgotten, lowest on the totem pole of culture, now that she's scandalized. And he has chosen to redeem society through the prophetic model of the spirit and the value system of his kingdom. It is not a kingdom that plays to the powerful. It is a kingdom that grows through the humility and the receptivity and the teachability of the lowly. Second thing that we discover about this kingdom and the nature of this revolution is not only is it a moral revolution, it is a social revolution. Verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones and he has lifted up the humble. Aren't you glad that you don't have to be some sort of, some, some sort of political or, or financial? Or, aren't you glad that, that God doesn't just listen to you when you reach a certain echelon of power? Aren't you glad about that? And if we take our cues from the spirit of this age, it is always, I have to get more, I have to do more, I have to be more, I have to be more powerful, I have to gain more influence. And we put so much of our trust in the influence that we procure for ourselves, and the level of status that we have around the people around us. But Mary says, this is a different kind of kingdom, y'all. It's not just a moral revolution whereby the value systems of this kingdom are turned upside down. It is a revolution where socially, socially, and this is why we see everywhere Jesus went, he was absolutely baffling everybody. He would show up and he would have dinner with tax collectors and it just, it just messed with everybody. Why? Because there was a social caste system, Jesus, and you're messing it all up. You're a rabbi. You're not supposed to be hanging out with tax collectors. And Jesus says things like this. It's not the, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And let's just take all the labels and the titles and the statuses of position off and let's, let's be the kingdom. And we've got, to t- we've got to pay attention to that. That's what Christ's church looks like. Christ's church is not a church that's separated and segmented and segregated based on, on, on socioeconomic classism. Christ's kingdom is a kingdom where all of us are brothers and sisters, and that's why we come to this table. That's why we come to this table. Because at this table, there's no status. At this table, there's no, there's no caste system. There's no position. At this table, at this table all are welcome regardless of what mistakes you've made in your life, regardless of how well you've done in your life at this table, the table by which Christ says, take and eat of my body and take and drink of my blood. All are welcome and all are on equal footing in my kingdom. I think it's interesting from a social dimension that the angel didn't come to Joseph. And I also think that it's interesting that the first prophetic ministry that we see comes from two ladies. Elizabeth, if you guys didn't catch this, because it's kind of implicit, but Elizabeth, once the Holy Spirit moves upon her and her baby is leaping inside of her, which is actually a throwback to Rebecca when Esau and Jacob were in her womb and they were wrestling one with another, You guys remember what I'm talking about? 
when Rebecca is carrying two kingdoms inside of her and they're wrestling with one another because the older culturally is supposed to lead the younger, but inside of her, she has two kingdoms that are wrestling and they're both wrestling for power. And yet here in this prophetic prototype of the new kingdom that is coming, we see that John is not wrestling for power. John is leaping with joy because the king is coming. And even though he's older in the family line, the younger shall come and shall lead because we're a part of a new kingdom now. So, he, so the Holy Spirit shows up to two women. And the scriptural account is that the charismatic life and the charismatic movement of the revelation of the power of God's spirit comes to two people that culturally should be inferior socially. What do we make of that? Maybe another talk for another day. Social revolution. I'm reminded when Jesus walked by in Matthew chapter eight and there was a man who socially was unclean, filled with leprosy. He cries out, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus destroys all of the social laws. He destroys, he absolutely obliterates and abolishes all of the social laws. And not only does he say, I am willing, he reaches out and he touches the man which he didn't have to do because later on in the exact same chapter, we find that there's a Roman centurion that comes to Jesus and he says, my servant, which, Hey, listen, socially based on class statuses, you shouldn't be dealing with Roman centurions servants, but Jesus speaks a word. He speaks a word. And the Roman centurion's servant is healed at that very moment. So he didn't have to touch the leper. But what the leper needed was not just physical restoration. He needed the social restitution. He needed the social reinstatement. He needed the social restoration. And when Jesus reached out and he put his hand on this man, it touched something physically that went down deep into the very identity of this man and his status in the community. It's a social revolution. And we as believers, we as people of the church, we ought to be aware of what's happening socially. We ought to be mindful of how the kingdom of God comes to bear on the social labels and positions and titles that we like to inflate and that we like to put our hope in. The third thing that we see about this kingdom, and this is good news, at least for me, but it's good news, I think, for all of us. It is, it is an economic revolution. He says right here in verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. He's lifted up the humble, verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. This one's, this one's a little tough, but it's not because I have to slice this up two ways. We have to see this two ways. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the, the full, he has sent the rich away empty. Now, Many of us know that the gospel writers all have their own personal agendas and their personal agendas were married together with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that between the four gospel writers, we get a complete picture of the life and the person and the ministry of Jesus. And one of Luke's particular agendas is that he is particularly sympathetic and he's particularly aware of the needs of the poor. And it's one of the things that we see in Luke that we don't see in Matthew, Mark, and John to the same degree. Luke wants us to understand that part of the revolutionary entrance of this kingdom is that those who were financially and economically distressed, that there is a place in this kingdom for them. And that's good news. 
And we need to always watch our hearts and we need to always guard ourselves from creating some type of uh, socioeconomic classism within this church. We find in Luke's gospel, if you turn with me here, just a few chapters over. Look at Luke chapter four. And we're gonna start with verse 18. And the backstory here is Jesus has just come out of the wilderness. The Lord is near in the wilderness. He is full of the Holy Spirit because he's resisted the temptation of the enemy by fasting 40 days, which gives us another insight into the power of fasting. That fasting helps us to conquer and master the flesh and the power of God. And so Jesus emerges from this time of testing and fasting in the power of the spirit. And here in Luke chapter four, verse 18, let's read this verse together. He announces a prophetic recollection of Isaiah chapter 61, which Isaiah chapter 61 is hundreds of years written before where the prophet Isaiah is announcing the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is essentially saying, hey, all those things that you quoted for years, booyah, here I am. That's me. But listen to specifically what Jesus chooses to pull from. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. This is not a gospel that is relegated to a particular status or stratus of society. It is a gospel for all people. But it is a gospel particularly, particularly, it is a gospel for all, but it is a gospel particularly for those who are near to the heart of God and as those who are experiencing systemic financial distress and oppression. And listen, I'm going to be honest with you today. I, I, I cannot tell you that I fully understand this, that I fully embody this, that I fully, that I fully have been transformed by this. I can tell you that I have made strides. I can tell you that I've postured my heart in this direction, but, I, but I, can't, I can't tell you I fully have the heart or the mind of God on this. But I can tell you this today as your pastor, that I want to, and that I'm leaning in, and that I'm, 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 I'm posturing my heart to say, Lord, there is something here that you know, and there's a wisdom that you have, particularly about the plight and the hardship of the poor that I need to understand that I want to understand. As a man in your kingdom, as a son of God, as a follower of your way, there's something here about, not, 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 I'm not talking about just being sympathetic. I'm not talking about just feeling sorry for, I'm talking about entering into God. I need your heart. I need your mind. I need an understanding. I need a willingness. I need an openness. I need a wisdom. And honestly, I think that's, that's, that's Luke's message to all of us. Because Luke's talking about two types of poverty. Number one, he's talking about a spiritual poverty. We see this better in Matthew's account of the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the poor in what? In spirit. So he is saying essentially that those who recognize spiritually that they have a need, like Mary, how would you, how would you visit me and remember me in my humble state? Like Mary who says, I recognize that I need a savior. That's what a poverty of spirit is. God can do more with a person who, ex who has a poverty of spirit than someone who assumes that they need no help. 
And I think for Western Americans, most of us, we probably wrestle with this idea of, well, I'm pretty sufficient and I've not gone through major challenges and, and I'm nowhere like the people in the rest of the world and I, I could pretty much just pull up my bootstraps and make this happen. And God is saying that there is a place in the kingdom and there is a reality of the kingdom that can only be experienced and can only be extended when we have a poverty of spirit that says, God, I need you. I need you. There's, I recognize, help me recognize my need. With all that I have, I still have a need. With all that I possess, I still lack a fullness of knowing who you are and experiencing the full riches of your kingdom. And God, I'm hungry for that. And I want that. We should be content. We should practice contentment circumstantially. But friends, we should never be satisfied with how much of God we have apprehended. We are on a continual eternal quest to discover the vast riches of who Christ is. And that's what Matthew's speaking of, poverty of spirit. But Luke is also speaking of poverty in the real material sense of the word. I'm so proud of you guys. I'm so proud of us as a family of believers who responded so well to that angel tree the past couple of weeks, guys, blown away, just seriously blown away. And listen, I want to say a couple of things about this because I know I've been in those situations. My wife and I have been in those situations where we experienced some financial hardship. We came out the gates. I was making $18,000 a year and the Lord told her that she wasn't supposed to work a job where she could have been lucratively paid. So we started out the gates, both of us with school loans, (laughs) making $18,000 a year. That's crazy. (laughs) Moved in with our in-laws for a couple of years. We experienced the pain of poor decisions. We've touched that. And I want you to know there's nothing shameful about that. For those of you who, who, who said, you know what? I, I need a little help. The unforeseen circumstances of the needs that have arisen far outweigh what I'm able to bring in circumstantially in my life right now. And I want you guys to know that's part of the beauty of being longing to a church. That's part of the beauty of being connected one with another. That's why when Peter sat down before Jesus in John chapter 13 and Jesus is about to wash his feet and Peter says, uh-uh, you ain't, you ain't washing my feet. And Jesus is like, that's fine. Because if you don't recognize that you have something that you need from me, I can't touch any part of your life and you can't walk forward with me. And Peter's like, hold up, hold up, hold up. I didn't, I didn't realize it was like that. He's like, wash my whole body, Lord. Jesus is like, oh my gosh, seriously, Peter. Let me just wash your feet. They're the ones that stink, okay? Just let me just take care of your feet. Gosh. But Peter was like, no, Jesus, you're not gonna do this. And Jesus is revealing something about the kingdom and he's saying, listen, you have need of me and you've gotta humble yourself to receive something I can give you. And we learn that in community and we learn that in the dynamic of spiritual family and every single one of us will need something at some point in our lives. Maybe it's financial, maybe it's not, but I have need of you need of you. Sometimes we have need of things that we don't even realize we need until the spirit of God prompts somebody that's in proximity to us to do that. Last week I was walking out in the foyer and George Colflesh, I don't know if George is here today, but George walked up to me and in a way that only George could do, he put both his hands on my shoulders and looked right into my eyes. And you guys know how that is. You're kind of like, you know, and man, just George just looked straight into my eyes with all the love of Christ. And he says, I want you to know how much I appreciate you. Kind of felt like that scene out of a particular movie I'm not gonna name, but I was like, yeah, 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 I, I know, I know. And 
George says, no, I appreciate you. No, yeah, I know, I know, yeah. No, I appreciate you. Yeah, I know. No, Jade, I appreciate you. Ah, not you, George, not you. George, man, I didn't even know I needed that. I didn't even know I needed that, but I had a poverty of soul. I had a poverty of spirit and you spoke into that, man. And I wanna thank you for being the man that you are and for being so generous and abundant with your love and with your words of encouragement. Guys, we all have need. We all have need. Today, as we approach the table of the Lord, Jonathan, if you would, please come forward. I want us to think a little differently about Christmas I want us to think that the king has come and with the coming of our king, I've only mentioned three things, but I'm here to tell you guys, our king who has come has started something. He has started something. He has set something in motion. The reality of the kingdom is upon us and amongst us. And I want us to posture our heart. Listen, this could be miracles. This could be the prophetic ministry of the Lord. This could be the reality of the spirit that we've heard negative things about all our lives. You guys can please come forward. This could be hopelessness. I'm just here to tell you today, I'm here to announce to you, the kingdom has come. The kingdom of God has come. Our King has come. And with his coming, things are changing. Something is set in motion. And we are called to embody that kingdom and all of what that kingdom entails. Guys, listen, we're called to embody that kingdom socially. Through the way that we treat genders, through the way that we treat generations, through the way that we treat different ethnicities and different races, we're called to embody that kingdom. Our kingdom looks different. We're called to embody that in the way that we care and love for the poor. We're called to embody that in the way that we bring the power of God to bear on the earth. So today, today, I want us to think about Christmas differently. I want us to come to this table and I want us to remember and I want us to believe that there is a new kingdom that has come. And guys, it's not beginning today. It began when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and that prophetic exclamation came out of her. The kingdom has begun. The great reversal, the great turning over, the spirit of this age. You are that church to live his kingdom in this world, to proclaim with your lives, the king has come and his kingdom is here. Friends, would you stand with me this morning as we approach the table of the Lord? Father, thank you so much. We are so grateful. We are so grateful that you plucked a young teenage girl out, forgotten, unseen, unnoticed, and you spoke to her. And God, this young girl chose to respond in faith and obedience. And God, because of her obedience and because of your mercy, heaven and earth kissed, humanity and divinity merged. God became flesh to say that a new kingdom is coming. And as we approach this table, oh God, I pray that that revolutionary power 
the revolutionary power of love and hope and joy and peace would grow and expand in our lives and that we would experience that closeness of the kingdom today in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.